Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Blog Talk Radio. Yes, it is completely coincidental that Candace Owens, Candace Owens and I both have the very same uh, music for the beginning of our programs. Completely coincidence. Unless, Candace, you're listening and you stole my... Okay, so you didn't steal my idea. Um, that's not how it works. Um, that is a, a, a track that is on YouTube. Um, that is YouTube safe and by hopefully by um by transference is podcast safe um to use and i think that that's why my guess is that's why she chose it or her staff chose it um because it's kind of cool and also it's one less thing for them to throw rocks at you about that way they can't say they're um you know they're throttling you back because you've got a um Copyright strike, you know, copyright hit. So, if you use the if you use the music that they provide, it's kind of hard for them to say that, right? Anyway, well, welcome to the program today. Welcome to the podcast. Uh, today, we're going to talk about um, Johnson's War on Poverty, which I always call Johnson's War on the Poor. Um, we're going to look at some numbers. We're going to look at some articles from um, from Fee. You guys. Uh, some of you guys may be aware of an organization called FEE, which is the Foundation for Edu- for Economic Education. Um, it is, it is, and I'm, I'll be honest with you, it is, it is a conservative think tank on on on, on economics, but it's not a pol- it's not a political one, which is why I like it. Um, my friend Vinny Tafaro hit me to FEE, um, and um, it is extremely extremely good and well thought out arguments. And we're going to talk about, um, and I know that I had this clickbait baity sort of title for the program. I know, uh, in the war on poverty, poverty won. Well, poverty is not down and out. After the assassination of John uh, Fitzgerald Kennedy, uh, and the, during the presidency of Lyndon Baines Johnson, one of Lyndon Baines Johnson's um, platform planks, because I think that he thought early that he would run again, uh, was to uh, decrease or eliminate poverty. And that's part of the great society. And he went on to um, start what everyone called, or what he called, 
the war on poverty. And what it turned out to be is war on the poor. And um, the numbers always say the same thing when we start talking about when you start talking about what you can what can you do to help to eliminate this or eliminate that yes it is a noble a noble thought a noble feeling to think that one can eliminate something that has always in every society every society always existed you understand it's you know poverty has been something that has always existed in every single society there's never been a societal or a governmental or an economic system that eliminated poverty well basically because poverty is relative you understand poverty is a relative thing if you've got two cars and live you got two cars and live indoors in a house and the roof doesn't leak then in some cases you're doing very well now especially if you compare yourself to someone who may be living in uh, in one room of a rooming house and the roof leaks and there are rats and they don't have money for a bus pass. So they walk everywhere they go. So you know what? They think you're rich. What? You live in a, in a three-bedroom house. The two of you live in a three-bedroom house. And you got two cars. And you got five damn TVs. And everybody got a, everybody got a cell phone. That's not prepaid. Y'all get what I'm saying, right? You, you, you get what I'm saying. So the idea is... Um, it's always it's always been um something that is relative if you take someone who, who you take that very same person who is living in a rooming house and then you compare them then you compare them to possibly someone in a third in a, in a third world nation who was living in, in, in basically in a hut with a uh, dirt floor trying to eat, you know, or trying to find witchetty grubs to eat to feed their family. The person living in the, living indoors in the one room, in the one, in, you know, in, in the rooming house is doing rather well. It's relative to start with. So it's always... So the war on this moving target, this human condition that always existed, was, although it is a noble gesture, it was dubious from the beginning. And I know that sounds like I'm a cynical bastard, but it was dubious from the very beginning. So when it caught it caught my attention when the Foundation for Economic Education and you and you, you can and you can go to the, their website is fee.org. Um Daniel Mitchell wrote an article entitled Poverty in the in the US was plummeting until Lyndon Johnson declared war on it. Yet again, government intervention hurts those it is intended to help. There you go. Um When we get back, we're going to start off with the first part. We're going to start off with what um, what Mitchell calls the welfare state's effects on the poor. Um, we're going to go over some of the numbers, and people can people are going to be able to. to I, I guess you can debate the numbers, and you can and you can say that you know you you can find a political stance for all. I mean, for, for how you feel about this, if you want to. But what we know is the, the numbers are just the numbers. Now, I understand, and, and those numbers represent people. 
So it's going to be really hard to fight what happened. Like we talked about last night here on the here on the podcast. You know what? We're just going to talk about what happened, and that's what I, and that's all I've ever done since two thousand March of two thousand eight when I started this this odyssey. I just talk about what happened. I, I very rarely talk about how I feel or how I feel about it. I just talk about what happened. I talk about what I saw, or I talk about what's happening, and this is what's happened. We back with more of the more of the podcast right after these messages. In America, there are three proven ways to build wealth. Business, investment, and real estate. All three seem to have high hurdles to jump to get into, but believe it or not, real estate is the lowest of the three hurdles, and multifamily real estate investing is the best way to go. From duplexes to apartment complexes, multifamily investing brings the biggest bang for your investment buck. My friends at Buy It, Rent It, Profit and the Landlord Academy are ready, willing, and able to get you going on the path of building wealth. Contact Joe Ebanks and Brian Chavis at buyitrentitprofit.com. Buyitrentitprofit.com. Hi, this is Willie Lawson. You know, with so much content whizzing around out there, there's only one storytelling platform that helps you keep calm and stay informed and inspired. It's Flipboard. Yeah, Flipboard curates the world story so you can be smarter in your work, life, and play. Choose from thousands of topics to personalize Flipboard and get the latest stories from the best publishers and experts delivered to you 24-7. When you see stories that you want to save or share, just tap the plus button and add them to your private or public collections. It's that simple. It's used by millions of people every day. Flipboard is how people move themselves and the world forward. So get started now at Flipboard.com. That's Flipboard.com. Welcome back to the podcast. We appreciate you being here. Uh, you know, it is absolutely positively, absolutely positively, absolutely positively um, one of these subjects that I have always been interested in. And, and the reason is that when someone says they're going to declare something, a war on something that we've seen this happen when government says that this is it, it's over. So when Reagan declares there's a war on drugs, drugs have won. Because not only in that, think, think again, just think about what's happened. In the war on drugs, we were going to wipe out illegal drug use. We're going to wipe it out. We're going to wipe out the we're going to wipe out on one hand what you know the causes on the other hand we're going to wipe out all the suppliers um, in Mexico and South America we're going to wipe it out we're going to win. You know what happened? Marijuana is now is now legal in a number of states in the United States for recreational use. Weed won because it was trying to govern someone's behavior. Weed won. In the war on drugs, weed won. Weed is now pushing towards mainstream. People are trying to get you to invest money and include in your 401k, if you've got stocks in your 401k, a weed stock. That's how I know weed won. And it doesn't matter and it doesn't matter how I feel about it. 
it doesn't matter how I feel about it. So in so at the beginning of the Great Society, the call was not to alleviate poverty. The call was to wipe it out. In another article from Fee, um, let's see, I want to get who wrote it, and I can't find it, but I will, I will find it. I'll, I will tell you as soon as I find it. It says, well, it's official. The war on poverty was a costly, tragic mistake. Ordinarily, people have suspected for decades. Ordinary people have suspected for, for decades. But, of course, we had to wait for the New York Times to decide that this news, to decide this news was fit to print, which it finally did on March 9th, 1998, in a front-page story on poverty in, a, in rural Kentucky. Michael Chanofsky did detail the failure of the effort in, in the one region that was supposed to be the centerpiece of reform. Federal and state agencies have plowed billions of dollars in Appalachia. He wrote, yet the area looks much as it did 30 years ago when President LBJ declared war on poverty taking special aim at the rural decay. Janowski visited Osley, Osley Kentucky, County, Kentucky, and found a poverty rate at over 46%, with over half of the adults illiterate and half, uh, half unemployed. Feelings of hopelessness have become so deeply entrenched, he reported that many of residents have long forsaken any expectations of bettering themselves. For years, the government has been trying to treat the despair with welfare programs. Two-thirds of the inhabitants receive federal assistance, including food stamps, um, AFDC, which doesn't exist anymore, uh, and SSI disability payments. This is now appears as part of the area's problems. Think about this area. Osley County, Kentucky, with a poverty rate of 46%. More than half of the adults can't read. And half and half and half of them and and you know what and half unemployed. Near a fifty percent poverty rate. Near a fifty percent unemployment rate. Near fifty percent, you know, illiteracy rate. They've been pouring billions of dollars. This was supposed to be the 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 shining star. This was supposed to be the thing. It was not. The war on poverty was the worst thing that ever happened to Appalachia. Janowski quotes one resident saying, "It gave people a way to get by without having to do any work." Local officials told him that many parents urged their children. To try to get on special edu- to try to go to special education classes at school as a way to prove that they are eligible for SSI disability benefits. The senior cl- the senior class at a local high school picked its motto: "I came, I slept, I graduated." Now think about how entrenched over the past thirty years this must be that. Someone would encourage their child to be in a special education class, you know, in a class for special needs kids. So later on, when you it went in and with if and when you graduate, it's easier to qualify for SSI benefit, disability benefits, that you are instantaneously upon graduation disabled for life. So um, he writes, why did the poverty, why did the war on poverty fail? What was wrong with the programs under which the nation spent over $5 trillion attempting to solve this problem of the poor only come up empty? It's an important question to ask these days uh, of welfare reform. The first steps towards a sound policy ought to be to identify the errors of the past. What have you done wrong before? And that's what we have to do. So this continuous, we're just going to do this attitude of we're just going to continue to do more. We haven't done enough. We haven't done enough. No, you haven't done the right things. We haven't done the right things. Here are some of the numbers. 
During the 20 years before the war on poverty was funded, the portion of the nation uh, living in poverty had dropped to 14.7% from 32.1%. Since 1966, the first year with a significant increase in the anti-poverty spending, the poverty rate reported by the Census Bureau has been virtually unchanged. Transfers, tar- transfers targeted to low-income uh, families increased in real dollars from an average of $3,070 per person in 1965, lot of money, three grand, right, to $34,093 in 2016. So the average transfers, money transfers, uh, either, either in money or, or in food stamps or whatever, $34,000 a person what we're spending on our, our poor. So when people tell you that, you know, we're not doing enough, come on now. And transfers now constitute 84.2% of the disposable income of the poorest quintile of American households. Quintile, fifth, right? Yeah. And 57.8% of the disposable income of lower middle income households. Lower middle income households. That's the so-called working poor. Over half of a lot of their income is from a transfer, is from a program of some type. These payments also make up 27.5% of America's total disposable income. A qu- more than a quarter of America's disposable income. That's income that you can choose what to do with. Not disposable like you don't need it, but you can choose what to do with it. You can choose to pay a bill. You can choose to buy a bike. 27.5% of America's total disposable income is from some sort of government transfer program. And that, and what that means is that they take money from, from one group of people and give it, transfer it to some, somebody else. This massive expansion of redistribution has negatively impacted the, the, the incentive to work. Now, this is one of those things. Just like, you know, I had, let me back up into my, some of my own experiences. I've talked to people, and I'm sure that if you talk to people, we have family members who, are, uh, who, who might be on public assistance, and they, may, and they may truly need at the time to be on public assistance. They may, they may need it. I'm not saying there isn't a need. Please don't don't get it twisted. I'm not saying that everybody's a welfare mama. I ain't saying that at all. There were times in my life that my family needed food stamps. My mother was on, and my mother made sure that we had food stamps because she had to have food in the house. You know, she figured, what the hell? Even if they're foreclosing on the house, we still have to eat. Even if they're repossessing the car, we still have to eat. You understand? I mean, I mean, and this and this is this is the sensibilities of of women. Whatever else is going on, whatever disastrous bullcrap is going on, you still got to eat. So I'm pretty sure that she was in the that my mother was instrumental. Because I remember her using them, food stamps. I remember. I never. She never handed any to me, so I could go to the store because there weren't any stores like that around where I where, where we were at the time. Um, you, you you could use them at the grocery store, and of course the kids made fun if they knew, but the fact of the matter is that a lot of a lot of those families that were working poor were using food stamps. You feel me? So we needed, and we needed them at the time. So I'm not saying to people that who don't need them, I mean, people who need them shouldn't, shouldn't use them. That would make me a monster and I'm not. But the, the 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 fact of the matter, we've also talked to people who have been on. Public, I've had relatives on public assistance who lived in public housing, 
for 40 plus years. And you talk to some of them and, and they'll tell you. If they're honest, they'll say, you know, being on the welfare make me lazy. Because because what happens is, and I, and I know this, this sounds like monster talk here. When you take care of everybody's basic needs, you give them a place to stay. You make sure they have food. They're warm. Or in this, or they're cool in the state. You know, when we talk about Florida, uh, or they can go, go somewhere and, and get cool. You take care of their basic needs. You sometimes cause them to not want to do these things on their own because it it, it dissuades them from doing it on on their own. And the systems are set up, and the welfare systems are set up and have been set up. And I believe, because I'm a conspiratorialist, okay, I'm not y'all. Y'all know I'm not. Um, that they're set up in, in, in a way to, and, and, and were for a long time, to make it difficult for folks to leave. I worked with a girl at Pizza Hut when I was in college. Uh, she was a waitress, and I heard her talking to my manager one day uh, about the schedule because he, you know what, we, those places always run a screw the crew um, sort of sort of deal where there aren't nearly enough people to work enough hours. And then if there's no business, you get sent home, that kind of thing. So there wasn't a, a bunch of people to work. And she was worried about working too many hours. Because if she worked too many hours, then that put her in a place where she might have lost some of the aid she needed to take care of her and, and, and her kid. That's again, that's a mother's love. That's a mother's sensibility. You know, whatever happens, got to take care of you, whatever got to do. So when you have that kind of system that doesn't reward you, I mean, doesn't reward progress, it doesn't reward you getting off. As a matter of fact, it makes it more difficult for you. Then you've got to wonder if this is the kind of system that it, that, that when you declare that, it, again, declaring war on, on poverty, is it really? Is it really? Because if you declare a war on poverty, who you're, what your champion has to be is prosperity. And so when someone becomes prosperous, that's what you have to celebrate. You have to make it easier for people to be prosperous. You can't make them prosperous, but you have to make it easier for them to become prosperous. On the 404 I see out there, give me a minute. Um, so this is, so, so I think it's, I think it's very interesting uh, that, the data show, that the data shows that the welfare state's effect on, on, on the poor has been problematical. Um, the stated goal, because the stated goal of the war on poverty is not taking, uh, is not just to raise living standards, and I, and I said this earlier, but to make America's poor more self-sufficient and to bring them into the mainstream of the economy that they were talking about. In, in, that, effort, in that effort, the war has been an abject failure increasing dependency and largely severing the bottom fifth of earners from the rewards and responsibilities of work. I mean, if you increase dependency and there's no work, then how can they become, how can anybody become mainstream economically? How's it possible? I hadn't planned on taking any calls today, but I'm going to take this one real quick. From the 404, I'm guessing that's Atlanta. Uh, welcome to the program. What can we do for you? Yes, sir. Yeah, this is Naj again, man. How could you not take the call? Come on. I'm... How you doing, man? <laughs> I'm good. Yeah. I'm good. Uh, I got you with your hand in the cookie jar again. So I guess I'm going to have to give the, the position from somewhere else on this one. Uh, a good story for today kind of correlates what we're talking about, though. Okay. Today, I thought I thought Joel Embiid would play really well for the 76ers in their game today. So mm-hmm. I figured out different arguments why he would play well. Guess what? He didn't play well. Now, 
my belief in Embiid's matchup tonight made me figure out arguments to support what I wanted to happen. So when you talk about this this issue of welfare or dependency, like these are old arguments that have been trotted out every century. You go back to Swift with a modest proposal. Uh, you can go to some of the some of the work Steinbeck did on this, but this has been typically how it's done. And, and honestly, man, not only are your findings incorrect, but this is a way to basically uh, you basically give an excuse for the oligarchic class and treat the system as if it's just a uh, it's just a case of who wants to work and who doesn't. And the reality is, if you want to run capitalist systems, you're going to have boom and bust cycles. And within that, you're going to have to figure out a safety net to keep things stable and also a government option to do what? Contribute to GDP. Right now, government spending is 20% of GDP in America. Even though people brag about GDP right now and tell us how good the economy is doing, they don't tell you how subsidized it is by the government. And government spending is not always bad. But the idea that this is about behavioral things as opposed to markets, industries dying, uh, workforces changing, uh, family dynamics changing from, you know, one breadwinner would support a whole household, uh, enough even to send someone to college. So all of that, that was, changing that was turned her. us into that a was behavior ec- thing. That was, that was, was that homeless economicus was the idea that, that there would be that, 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 that's from the University of Chicago, homeless economicus, economic man, that that person would be able to, to be the one breadwinner and, and his spouse would be able to stay home and he would make enough for the family. His house would always increase in value. And because of property taxes, the schools will always be funded. And that whole idea was based on, on, on something that really never really existed and never really, and, and only, and only was thought about because uh, homo, homo economicus was a white guy and wasn't a person of color and wasn't, and, and was well-educated all those things. Yes, I get it, and I and I appreciate it. Right, right, right. I'm, well, I'm just talking you, about. Before you do that, appreciate it thing again. But hold, wait, hold on, hold on. no, 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 no right. I can't. I'm just, I'm just talking about basically. Yes, and we all and we all do this. I touch on this platform. I I I see my own experience, my own experiences, and I, and if you listen for a little bit, for a little bit, I'm talking about my own experiences personally, and the people I know who are my relatives who have told me the behavioral side of this and you can't just ignore the behavioral side of it. Like it does, like it doesn't really exist, like it doesn't really exist because it does exist because all of these things, all the things that you talk about have a behavioral effect on people. And you can't just dismiss that. You can't just give me a second and I will, because I did click the button. I didn't have to click the button, but you can't just dismiss the behavior, the, the human behavioral side of what we've seen in the past 60 years, that that creates a, that creates a mentality, that creates a behavior, that creates a, 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 a community of a community that creates a, a way of thinking, a way of perceiving the world. You, you can't just dismiss that. Like it doesn't, like it didn't happen. Now there may be all sorts of forces that caused it for sure, but you have to address the human behavioral side of it, like you're addressing everything else. We do this so often in our country. We act like we can only do one thing at a time. We can only think of one thing at a time. When the fact of the matter is that it's always more than one thing at a time. Now, right now, I can only talk about one thing at a time. Otherwise, otherwise, my show would be 84 hours. As, as I made sure that I got to every single point and every single thing. Go ahead, make your point. Okay, first things first. Uh, anecdotal evidence, people you know or people you've talked to, yeah, that's, that's to some point valuable, but is it as valuable as saying, okay, the whole swath of people in the country under this particular economic line? I think that's more important. When you talk about the systemic as opposed to the personal anecdotes, like, no, those two things are nowhere near in comparison. And if you're going to discuss a topic like this, it's way more important to discuss the hundreds of millions as opposed to I heard something or I saw this or I've come to the conclusion that this is caused by this behavior rather than saying, okay, 
how is this economy structured and how is this My friend, generationally? Pe- I hear what you're saying. I mean, this is a podcast, okay, not a college this. class. This is a co- this is a podcast, not a college, not a college class. It's not a college class. I I never said this. I never said this was a college class. I never said this was going to be an exhaustive study on this. I mean, and and I think that we get we're getting into that that everything has to be some sort of exhaustive study. No, this this is this can just be my opinion. And if me you think you my talk, opinion is wrong, you've talked many times before. Normally, yeah. as a conservative, me and you are going to disagree, but you at least have the kahunas to stand up and have your argument, lay out yours, hear another one. But this is that emotional pushback of I don't want to hear information that could go against my argument that I didn't build very well. Like that, that's no, what's I, going on right here. No, if, no, if that and was I, going like, on, I, you if that was going on, I would have never hit the button. If that was going on, I would have never hit the button because I don't have to. Well, I, I mean, learned that in, if, ra- if I learned radio. Like, okay, okay, my man, I, I'll get out. I, I feel like <laughs> I feel like you feel like you're being attacked when I'm saying I'm attacking your idea, not you. Definitely okay. No I pre- okay. Thank you, and, and I, I appreciate that too. All right. Have a good night. Be good. Be well. There is a behavioral side of all of this, and we don't. If we don't address, and, and, and my thought is, the numbers are real, but if we don't address the behavioral side of what these this these things cause. We will never be able to solve them. You know, my I'm going to talk about tomorrow, um, actually tomorrow afternoon. I'm going to talk about why do we think we can only do one thing at a time? And why don't we attack the thing that, change the thing that we can change? And, and what we can change is our behavior. And, and to give, and to give, anecdotal for sure, but to give examples that you've seen that you can attach that you can attach to some of the some of the other uh, other research is like well not only this is there research saying that you know that that dependency is a problem you go yeah I've seen I've actually personally seen that I've seen that where I live I've seen that you know in my own personal life which gives that that research a little bit more validity now can you can I sit here and say that this is every single person who has been on public assistance? No, because nobody is saying that. And, 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 and here's what my friend and people like my friend do sometimes is that if you generalize, then you do get attacked. But if you can't talk about things in general, then you can't talk about anything. And it is a way to shut down the discussion because sometimes you have to talk about generalities. Now there was a, a column in the in, in, in the Wall Street Journal. Um, Peter Cove reached a similar a similar conclusion. Like I'm not I'm not the only one reaching these conclusions. I didn't I didn't wake up this morning thinking, yeah, oh those bastards on welfare. No, didn't. I didn't come out like that. America doesn't have enough. Uh, according to Peter Cove of, of the Wall Street Journal, um, he writes, America doesn't have a worker shortage. It has a work shortage. The unemployment rate is at a 15-year low, but only 55% of American adults, 18 to 64, have full-time jobs. Nearly 95 million people have removed themselves entirely from the job market. Ninety-five million people. Now, we can say that part of that is a lack of industrial um, jobs that have disappeared. Technology has changed a lot of things for sure. Technology always unemploys people. Always. Always, always has. And always will. But when you have folks who will, will tell you, will write in surveys, that they have taken themselves out. That they are not looking, that they've, they're not working, and they're not looking for work. That's a behavior. That's creating a culture. That's not just all the mechanisms. That's a culture. That's a culture. 
There you go. Um, there it is. Entirely from the, from the from the job market, according to the the, uh, the demographer Nicholas um, Eberstadt, the labor force participation rate for men twenty five to fifty four is lower now than it's been at the end, at the end of the Great Depression. The welfare state is largely to blame, according according to Peter Cope, um, insisting on work in exchange for social benefits would ex- would succeed in reducing dependency. Now, that part of the statement is, is an opinion. Maybe. And I, I guess that's, you know, what if you get welfare, then you have to work or volunteer or whatever. And, I, and some of these and some of those programs, ha- I guess, have been successful. Um, we I mean, we hear about them, the welfare to work program and those kind of things. We we hear about them starting, but we don't really get any information later on how they and how they actually work out. Um, you hear uh, a case where someone started it and they got better and they got off welfare and they got their lives started. What we don't hear about is the people who don't and it's a disaster. It's like my friend was talking about basketball. We we hear about the Kobe Bryants who leave high school and enter the NBA, but we don't hear about all the people who leave high school and try to get in the NBA and don't even make the developmental league. And now they're looking for a junior college to get in. But they can't play basketball there because they've had an agent, and, and, it's, and it's a nightmare. Anyway, um, the welfare state is largely to blame, insisting that uh, on work in exchange for social benefits would succeed in reducing dependency. Well, maybe. We have, we have the data within 10 years of, 19, of 1996 reform. The number of Americans in the Temporary Assistance for Needy Families program fell 60%, but no reform is permanent. It's in, it, it, it mentions President Obama. Federal poverty p- programs ballooned. Well, and it's been my it's, it's been my contention all along that government, just in general, is not is not the best way. It's simply not the best way because what you're talking about now. And you might not have been talking about before, but you're talking about now for sure is that you have you are changing the behaviors of folks. Um, the last caller talked about changing family dynamics. Well, how the how did these family dynamics change? Some of them changed, especially on Johnson's War on the Poor, because there were you know men, black men in particular weren't allowed to be in, in the family anymore. And it just takes a couple of iterations to make it so, again, because mothers are going to take care of their kids, that now black men weren't as big a part of those families anymore, and now you've changed behavior. To leave out the human side of this as something that you should not address when dealing with with poor, with the poor I think does the poor a disservice, and I think does our nation a disservice. Uh, you have to you have to include it all. Like I said, I can't talk about all of it. I'm going to talk about the part that I'm thinking about, and this is the part I'm thinking about. Um, so in 1967, uh, 95% of quote prime age in quote men between the ages of 25 and 54 worked. During the Great Recession, though, the share of jobless prime male rose above 20%. The jobless prime male rolled about 20%. Even today, long after the recession officially ended, more than 15% of such men aren't working. And there's got to be a reason. And some of it is that their jobs don't exist anymore. Yes, obviously, their jobs don't exist anymore. When they used to be able to, to go to a um, uh, an auto plant, and turn a screw or, or whatever, it, whatever they did, their jobs don't exist anymore. That's always going to be part of the equation. But that seems to me like an awful lot. That long after the recession officially ended, more than 15% of such men aren't working. 
the rise in joblessness, especially among men, is a is the great American domestic crisis of the 21st century. It is a crisis of spirit more than resources, and I believe that. I think that the things that have happened will affect a society emotionally and will affect people emotionally. It will change our perception of how we think and how we, how, how, how we see ourselves in our society. And then that, in a, in a way, changes what people think the role of government is. And that somehow gov- government should be the arbiter of right and wrong, should be, so somehow should be the arbiter of, of, of who wins and who loses, that the government should, should somehow be out there, quote, leveling the playing field. Government shouldn't be anywhere near the damn playing field. The market should be out there deciding what the playing field is. All right. I took one call, and I guess, let's see, I don't have much time left. Oh, I'm get about 14 minutes. What the hell? I'll take, an, I'll, I'll take another one. From the 314, good evening, or heck, morning. <laughs> 1 o'clock in the morning. What's wrong with me? Well, you know what <laughs> makes it so hard for, uh, how you doing? I'm good, well, thank some you. Of these, like they made a, a Reno article where it said 45% of black males that graduated from high school in, in Chicago are out of work. Well, you know, here's the thing that you don't hear about. And I talk about this organization very much because I participate and try to spur on young people to get involved. That's the National Society of Black Engineers. Yes. Willie, they just finished. They just finished a 45th annual national convention in Detroit at Cabot, Cabot Hall. And there at that convention, which ended March the 31st, you had one corporation amongst others, but one, Lockheed Martin, hired 400 young black STEM graduates, plus the thousands of others that was hired. It was over 15,000 in attendance. Last two years in 17 and 18, and I'm just making mention of this because it's one corporation. Northwood uh, Grumman hired 400 plus two years in a row. Wow. So what is it that those children, those young people have that makes them so valuable? And that's not just them. You know, you got uh, Google, Amazon, you got Goldman Sachs, you got the FBI, CIA, and the uh, DOD. They're hiring these STEM gap graduates. And the atmosphere that we have it today where uh, this present administration had let it be known to those immigrants that's here on work visa, that's working in areas where they had the difficult time finding Americans, they're saying that we're training Americans and at some point in time, you know, we welcome that you came, but you're going to have to leave. So, that, well, you know, it's you know, there. well, yeah, and 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 it's my thought that yes, technology is always going to change the you know the 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 playing field of what you know what jobs are available. It always it always has so. If we can get those those young people to understand, and and I think that that's, that's I believe that's starting to happen, that the new jobs aren't in that are in Detroit aren't with necessarily with Ford or Chrysler, Ford or Chrysler, um, they're with again they're with Google, they're with Amazon, they're with Lockheed Martin, and in these STEM programs. So some some of the people there, there's always going to be some people in that group that I just mentioned. Um, and, and they called them the prime age men between 20, 25 and 30 and 54. There's always going to be some percentage of them that are going to be X'd out of whatever the current workforce is because of the job they do. I mean, even, I mean, even when you talk about technology, uh, I don't, I don't know if you're as old as I am, uh, or as seasoned as I am, but I remember how the job of, of somebody who said they were a computer programmer when I was, you know, what? I guess in my, tw- my, 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 my teens and 20s, and we thought, that person's going to be rich. And they're really smart. Um, <clears throat> and now, well, basically, that, that position in the computer world, mm-hmm. it barely exists like it used to, because everybody codes, right? You know what? Uh, I remember, well, I know when 
key punch operators went yes. to community college to learn about computers. Yes. So I go back further than that. But the thing is, you know, you're talking about these people 25 years old. Now, yeah, you know, some people, people going to have to go back and, and get new skills. I remember when they closed, uh, Ford closed a plant here, Chrysler closed a plant. Well, they took their workers in and started training them for what's out there. You know, in that time between it was closing plants, now they're starting to build plants again. But that's what you have to do. But on the other hand, you have to have a program, a system to train, not train, but to acclimate young African-American children as early as the third grade and start working with them just like you would do a football combine. You know, they have inert skills and what they don't have can be developed. And that's what has to be done in order to meet the numbers that we should have met a long time ago, uh, looking at the portion of our population. And it's, it's, it's a shame that blacks only make up 4% of the engineers in the United States. And that has to change. Well, you know, what do you think the, the, the effect of Johnson's war on poverty um, has been, especially in our, especially in our communities, um, when it when it comes to comes to these kinds of issues, and how is how I I I am of the mind I am of the opinion. I know my last caller was all mad at me because I was talk I was talking anecdotally and I was talking about the human side of Johnson's War on the Poor, um, and how it's I think it's depressed and and taken our you know our community and especially our men and put them in a place of depression and oppression more so than if they had a real shot at participating in the market forces that people become wealthy or and prosperous in. Well, it took them out of competitions, and you still see the same thing going on today. You're, when your kids come out, of, when these kids come out of these schools in in, in mass, they are not comp- competitive. And here's the thing, and I say this all the time about. Your black kids, I'm just saying this in general, Nigerians are not going to give your black kids what they need to have to compete against their black kids. That has to come out of black society, has to come out of responsible and functional households. Now, if you don't have functional households, there's programs out there that you can get your child involved in, and they basically would take over the responsibility, not the responsibility, but the accountability that's not being shown by some of these pseudo families that we have out here. All that's very, very important. You have to have intergenerational assets better known as grandparents, legitimate (laughs) grandparents. You can't have no 35-year-old grandparents. So like you mentioned before, these programs like Johnson's uh, war on poverty did do a number on breaking that circle that had been existing for a long time where it did generate, you know, the basics of a family, the basis of controlling your, your young people and trying to steer them into the direction that they need to be steered to. Because I still think, I still think that, that because of people are, are people are people that you will find, unfortunately, a preponderance of folks who, who who found just like when I when I opened the show and I, and I think that a last caller who was mad at me didn't see that there was a in Onsley, Kentucky, which was what was supposed to be this shining example of how the the war on poverty in this rural area of Kentucky was going to be the perfect place. And now, some many many years later, it is as bad or worse than it ever was with a poverty rate over 46%. And feelings of hopelessness have become so deeply entrenched. It's part of the culture there now that, that, that parents tell their kids, you know, to try, they try to get them in special ed classes. So when they, when, and if they graduate, it'd be easier for them to file and receive SSI. <laughs> Failures. Well, I don't know how to comment on that. Isn't it, well, it, it, isn't it incredible? 
I'm, yeah, I mean, and, is, but... and, 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 and this and this article didn't come from townhall.com. It didn't come out of out of the Cato Institute or the Heritage Foundation. This was an article written in the New York Times. Well, you know, I'm gonna tell you, Willie. Uh, if we didn't care, we wouldn't be talking about it. But we had to come to face the reality that everybody ain't gonna make it. That's very true too. Everybody's not gonna make it. Now, I don't know what need. You know, I'm a strong proponent for a school choice with vouchers, where you do have parents that are functional, but they are poor and, and poverty stricken. Well, they need to be able to take their child, especially if their child is being bored in the environment that they're in, in these quote-unquote public schools. They need to be able to take their child out and put it somewhere, put them somewhere where they're going to be challenged, and it will fit with their overall long-term educational goals. Well, here in Florida, we just fixed that. Uh, we just passed, um, a, and it's been 20 years in the making, uh, a school, a, a real live school voucher program. Uh, it's been 20 years in the making, and boy and boy, you should hear, you should hear the screaming from the teachers unions and the like. Uh, oh, but, yeah. it, but it, but it, but it's but it's finally happening. Um, so somebody who is a functioning, a functioning parent, regardless of where they happen to live right now, whether they're living in you know in a three bedroom house in the suburbs or they're living in 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 a, in a two bedroom apartment in you know in in the projects that can see that where their kid is going to school now is not going to benefit them long term is now got the option or will soon have the option to put their kid in a better school. You know what? Out outside of the one that the district tells them they have to go to, which has been a failing school for years and years and years. Um, so now at least there'll be some real, there, there can be now, will there be, I don't know, because there's still people still have choice. Um, and then people still have to follow through and pe- people still have to do what people have to do, but at least now there's a chance. Well, I was reading an article out of, from out of California, one of those cities where the NAACP local chapter wants a moratorium so they can break from the standard practice of the NAACP scorning school choice, i.e. charter schools. And I was happy to read that, but I also said this, Willie, and I want you to pay attention. It won't be very long before the head chapter, the headquarters for the NAACP, ousts those presidents. Watch my, I mean, mark my word. They're going to get rid of them because it's not in their interest of the NAACP being so heavily influenced by the National Education Association and the American Federation of Teachers, and I don't know what they got in California, but they are heavily influenced by those organizations. Yeah, I think I think it's AFT out there because AFT is is, is combined with AFL CIO if I if I remember correctly. Um, because and we not in. I'm not against right. unions, but what I'm against is that they use these young seventy five percent of the black males in California are not reading at a level. Look it up. And they use these young people. There's no responsibility, no accountability that they should teach these. You know, here's another thing, too. Actually, like in Missouri, it's the parents' fault because the state statutes in Missouri give the local community the authority to set the curriculum, instructional material, and the books. Other and words, they if they say this is the direction we want to go, that school board got to go in the direction that those people want to go. Well, we live, but unfortunately, we live in an expert, an, ex, an expert-driven world, and, and people are, are are afraid to to challenge the experts. Um, and I, I think I really think that that's a problem. And I think I'm gonna do a, a show on on the fear of challenging the experts. And sometimes, and let me say to, this. Hang on, Doctor, because I only got like a minute. I know you only got a minute. It's going to take me just five seconds, ten seconds to go to the majors. They've done a survey of DACA uh, people. You know, you know what DACA is. Yes. They say that the, they're going to school that to to take up courses in accounting, biochemistry, business administration, chemical engineer, civil engineer, computer science, law, mathematics. 
what is it that put it in these folks' head that's coming from other countries here that they are seeking this type of education and you can't get that same type of motivation from black society? I'll let you get the rest of your show. I appreciate that. And that's the and that's my point all along. Thanks again. It's always good talking to you. That's my point all along. It's 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 because of the emotional and social beatdown generated from Johnson's war on, on on the poor. Johnson's war on black people. Whatever you say, it's gotta be the way it is. Can we get we see you again, go out there and learn something, love somebody and pray give them the sakes. Y'all take care of yourself. We'll see you when we see you. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.